Due to the graphic nature of this haunted place, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes depictions of gore, lynchings, violence against minors, and a brief mention of suicide. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Troy's mother was always taking him to places he didn't want to go. She wouldn't even let him use the boys' bathroom. She said that no four-year-olds got to use the bathroom they wanted. But she was lying. His dad let him use the boys' bathroom all the time. But dad was still back at the hotel. So Troy had no choice but to go with his mom to the beach and then to a little bar for refreshments. He drank his water fast then began hopping from foot to foot as he tried to get his mom's attention. He really needed to pee. So she went to check the girl's bathroom first and then told him he could use it. It was empty. He glared at her. She crossed her arms and waited. After a minute, Troy gave up and headed in. Troy's mother was wrong. The bathroom wasn't empty. There was a woman in there. Her legs were dangling in midair, just above his head. There were big red marks across her throat. Splatters of brown covered her dress, and a trail of red liquid dripped down to the floor. Troy rubbed at his eyes. The woman was still there. She was twitching, face turning blue. Her arms stretched out from her body getting longer and longer, somehow able to reach him as he backed up towards the wall. He squeezed his eyes shut, hoping she would just go away. Then he felt her touch. Her hands were cold as ice and sharp. Something slid down from the top of his head to his chin. He felt the open air sting against the fresh scratches. Her hands left him, and all was quiet. He opened one eye, prepared to make a run for it. Suddenly, the arms were around him, locking him in a savage embrace. He struggled until he couldn't anymore. Urine hit the tile floor, and the bathroom was silent once again. Welcome to Haunted Places, a ParCast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. To stream Haunted Places for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Haunted in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to Captain Tony's Saloon, a mid-19th century ice house turned morgue turned bar complete with a hanging tree in the parlor and discover why to this day it's haunted
there's no place quite like Key West, Florida, and there's no bar quite like Captain Tony's Saloon. The building has been said to have many lives since opening its doors in 1851, from a morgue to a bordello to a speakeasy frequented by Ernest Hemingway. Several sets of human remains have been found during renovations to the saloon, and many patrons report sightings of a woman in blue moving through the parlor and in the women's bathroom. But Key West itself has always played host to death. In its early history, the island allegedly served as a communal gravesite for the Calusa and Tequesta tribes of South Florida. The Spanish colonizers who invaded Key West in 1521 called the 5.6 square mile island Cayo Hueso, or Bone Key, as open air burials were common. Despite its early European contact, Key West maintained no permanent settlements until the 1820s, when U.S. Navy Lieutenant Commander Matthew C. Perry claimed the Florida Keys as U.S. territory. Spain offered no objections, and the American Navy proceeded to use the island as a base of operations in their war against piracy. During that time period, at least 16 pirates were executed on the island. In 1851, perhaps for practical purposes, a combination ice house and city morgue was built next to the town's so-called hanging tree. Whatever the reason, the land that would eventually become the home of Captain Tony's saloon became the last stopping place for many of Key West's settlers, regardless of their origins. The land behind the morgue transformed into a makeshift potter's field, acting as a low-cost grave for those without family or means of burial. And this sort of grave was particularly vulnerable to the elements. In 1865, hurricane season wasn't kind to Key West. Estimated 105 mile per hour winds racked the island, and every boat in the harbor was either sunk or thrown inland. The storm showed the settlers why the indigenous Floridians hadn't buried their dead on the Bone Key. All it took was rising tide and swirling winds to raise them from the ground. The sky screamed in anguish in late October 1865. Anita woke in the middle of the night to the pounding of rain and hail against the tin roof. The flimsy boards of her house shook. Water leaked in through gaps in the slats. Rivulets of water cascaded from the roof onto her forehead. She spent the rest of the night in the bathtub. In her dreams, she was drowning, surrounded by water with no land in sight. Her parents hadn't wanted her to live alone, but if they had their way, Anita would never have left home at all. Aside from services with the Wungan, their voodoo priest, of course. When they moved to Key West, they brought their Haitian traditions with them. Anita believed in the power of voodoo, but still found herself doubting the strength of their traditions. Would the Loa, the spirits, really follow them to their strange new home? She hoped they had. She needed them in this storm. When she woke, half of her body was submerged. The rain had stopped, but murky water hid the floor from her sight. 
She pulled herself out of the tub slowly and crept out of the bathroom. Something slithered past her leg. Anita shivered. She didn't want to know what creature had entered her house with the storm. Two sharp prongs bit into her foot. She lifted her foot slowly, balancing precariously on one leg. Large splinters jutted out of her skin. She pulled the last remnants of her bamboo shutters out of her foot slowly, clenching her jaw as she did so. She took a deep breath before continuing onward, wading towards her front yard. The streets have been replaced by rivers of debris, dark water with fragmented objects floating on top. The sky was a cold gray. She needed to check on her family. She tried to collect herself for the long walk, or perhaps swim. But then, something else bumped against the small of her back. It was solid, but soft. Bloated. Someone was floating in the water. A boy, maybe 15 years old. At first, she thought he might need help. But his skin was impossibly cold. His eyes were cloudy. An open-mouthed expression of horror was frozen on his face. This was not a victim of the storm. This child's death had been far more horrific. Anita had seen him around town when he had been alive. She did not know his name. But an unnatural death left a soul languishing by its grave while the law made their decision about what should happen to it. If the soul had been separated from their resting place, they were vulnerable to being controlled by a bokor, a sorcerer. Anita wasn't just looking at a dead body. She was looking at something that could rise again under the command of someone else's soul, a zombie. Anita changed her course. She could not let the soul be taken by someone who wished harm to the world. It needed a resting place. She looped one arm around the corpse's torso and started wading towards the cemetery. The world was eerily still, when it should have been bustling. The small two-story home stood empty on the main street, their wide doors left open as the water flowed lazily in and out. Barrels, chairs, and fresh bread floated from the entrance to the general store. No souls, living or otherwise, were lingering outside. As she came closer to the cemetery, realization dawned on her. Chunks of gravestone floated alongside them. There were no other bodies to be found in the sacred earth. The cemetery had been destroyed and hundreds of souls have been ripped away from their final resting place. But she couldn't fret about that yet. Anita needed to bury this boy first. She needed dry land. Then she would worry about what happened to the others. She alternately walked and floated for several miles before she found a spot where the water had dropped away. She wrapped her arms around the bloated corpse carrying it out of the water and towards safety. The ground was still damp around the ice house, but it would have to do. She laid the corpse down carefully before digging into the soil with her fingers. 
The moisture had made the earth pliable. She dug with purpose, bruises blossoming along her fingertips. Eventually, she dragged the body inside the hole she had created. Anita took one small vial of holy water from her satchel and placed it with the body. Glad of her mother's stubborn adherence to their traditions for the first time in a long time. But she knew it would not be enough. Her Wungon lived nearby. She could get more vials from him, enough to surround the body, protecting its soul. She raced to his house, but he was not home. She fretted about what to do, but ultimately decided necessity allowed her to take the holy water, leaving a promise to pay in full when he returned. Anita filled her bag with as many vials as she could carry and made her way back to the ice house. She walked carefully picking through the mist that had floated over the choked marsh that had been her home. She had the right to be afraid for the soul's safety. As she approached her makeshift grave, a figure emerged from the gray. Someone was waiting for her. They were more bone than person. Their eyes protruded from their skull pulsing with blood, even though it looked like the rest of their veins had been ripped out. They were missing teeth and several fingers. One of the bones in their legs had been snapped in half, held together only by tenuous, ragged sinew. The limbs should not have been upright, yet the creature seemed undeterred, held up by a force more powerful than gravity. Anita clutched her bag tightly looking down to the boy's body, still in the half-finished grave. She did not want to cross paths with a zombie, but she had to prevent the other soul from turning into this. The zombie watched her with its red eyes as she knelt down to the ground and began to plant vials of holy water in the soil. Casually, she asked the creature what it should be called. There was a smile in its voice, as it told her that it had once been called Alanord. Now it had no name, no purpose, except to serve the whims of its bokor. Anita could guess what Alanord's whims were. More dead for the bokor. More zombies. The dirt started to harden under her fingers as she struggled to shove the vials beside the corpse. She pleaded with the zombie. The Bokur had so many choices at their disposal. Why this one soul? Think of the balance he could restore if he had mercy and left it free to await the judgment of the Loa. Eleanor sucked his few teeth. He told her she was naive to think that a Bokur wouldn't always want more power and a spiritual army to control the island. He reached into the ground and pulled out the vial of holy water that was supposed to protect the lost soul. More of Alanord's flesh peeled away, but he didn't seem to notice. He threw the bottle towards another chunk of broken gravestone. The vial shattered into useless shards, the poor soul's only defense sinking into the already damp earth. Anita took the opportunity to get closer to the boy's corpse. She dug into the dirt quickly. Small rocks raked her skin, but she couldn't afford to stop. She shoved bottle after bottle of holy water around the body, one vial, then another. Eleanor attacked her. 
She felt rotting flesh and cracked nails close over her hair as he dragged her backward. She tore at his arms, sloughing bits of skin and muscle away as she desperately struggled to free herself. Finally, she threw herself to the side, slipping from his grasp. Anita ran to the body, the vials in her satchel clinking as she moved. She shoved them around the head of the corpse as the zombie stumbled toward her. She was almost halfway done. If she could set them all in place, the soul would be safe. The zombie reached for her, but she was ready for him this time. She narrowly avoided his outstretched hand. He leaned too far, teetering and nearly falling as she ran to the other side of the grave. Anita buried another vial in the soil. She was so close to being finished. Eleanor backed away, watching her work. She didn't have time to wonder why he had stopped. She kept digging into the soil. Her fingers bled. The earth sucked up the moisture, still thirsty despite the flood. As she laid the last file into place, she felt Eleanor behind her. Something cold moved through her body. Bony fingers clutched around her heart. She realized suddenly that she had placed every bottle in the grave, leaving no protection for herself. Eleanor called her noble as he pulled her heart out of her body. One soul saved, another released. A new prize for the Bokor. Key West has a significant Bahamian population. This demographic includes both descendants of black slaves and conks, white people whose British loyalist ancestors fled the American Revolution. But the term eventually grew to refer to any residents of the Florida Keys. While the spiritual practice of voodoo is most closely associated with Haiti, practitioners of the tradition spread throughout the Caribbean including the Bahamas and Key West. Many adherents of voodoo believe in the idea of the Bokor, a sorcerer who uses his ties to the spirits or loa to work magic. One of a Bokor's most sinister powers was the ability to bind the dead to his will, creating a zombie. It fell to the Wungan to stand against the Bokor's evil influence, protecting both the living and the dead from his manipulation and control. The word zombie is believed to be derived from nzombi, the Congo word for soul. The reanimation of the dead for the purpose of enslavement is a distinctly Haitian idea. Many African scholars believe that zombi is an intersection between African religious traditions and the very real fear that enslaved people would be forced to continue their servitude even after death. But not all threats to the departed were supernatural in nature. The hurricane that struck the Florida Keys in 1865 did equal harm to the dead as well as the living. In the storm, many of the bodies awaiting burial in the morgue were swept out to sea. The only corpse that remained was buried near the hanging tree by unknown Bahamian people. They built a wall around the grave and filled the wall with bottles of holy water in order to protect the deceased from any more disturbances. The blessed wall still stands today in Captain Tony's saloon. 
integrated into the pub's new billiards room. Up next, we explore the events surrounding the Key West Hanging Tree's most famous victim, the ominous Blue Lady. Now, back to the story. When you enter Captain Tony's saloon, the first thing you notice is a giant tree extending up through the enclosed courtyard. There are bras hanging from the ceiling next to it in nearly every color and size, reflecting the spirit of Captain Tony himself, a lover of both local history and local women. But the jubilant spirit of the saloon's main room obscures the tree's dark history. There were at least 16 confirmed executions of pirates at the hanging tree, but pirates were not the only ones strangled from its branches. In spite of the horrors committed at this hanging tree, only one spirit would come back. The most active ghost in Captain Tony's saloon is known as the Lady in Blue. Her real name has been lost to time, but her crime is unforgettable. And in the 1890s, there was only one way to punish a woman who had done something so awful. Hank wasn't afraid of dead bodies. The morgue and the ice house were one and the same in Key West. He often came with his mother to purchase ice, and it never bothered him. The room was nice and chilly, and the bodies didn't really look like people anymore, embedded in large chunks of frost. Their skin was stretched and gray, their faces impossible to make out in the meager light. They lay perfectly still on the floor of the ice house, more like wax dummies than former people. If you poked them, they just felt like soft rubber. It wasn't that big of a deal. Now that he was almost eight, his mom even let him hold the ice pick sometimes. He'd stab at the ice, always careful not to hit a body. He liked the way it felt when the ice broke off. The sound of it as it fell into his little metal bucket. Whenever his mom needed ice, he was the very first person to volunteer. Sometimes, when he stood on his tiptoes, he could see the corpse's vacant eyes. They were all staring up, hopefully at their soul's final destination. As Hank got closer to the ice house today, though, he could tell there was something different going on. People were still talking about dead bodies, but there was an excitement in the air rather than despair. No one was mourning the new arrival. They were milling about, chattering together as more and more neighbors showed up, packed so tight that he could only see a few feet in front of him. He peered around through the legs of the crowd, looking for the corpse they must have been talking about. Hank had never actually seen one being moved. He wanted to see if it was rigid or loose, like a rag doll or a statue, but he was too small. He weaved through the crowd, looking for any signs that something had been dragged through this way. He couldn't see any new slabs of ice. People were still joining the crowd, but they weren't heading towards the ice house. They were heading towards the tree the hanging tree. Hank had heard stories about the hanging tree. His mother always told him to stay away from it. It brought nothing but evil into the world. It didn't look evil to him, though. 
There weren't any twisting branches or gnarled roots. The leaves were all a shiny green. Almost looked happy. When he told his mother, she'd laughed darkly and said the kindest smiles hide the ugliest sins. He could see the braided rope now. His stomach churned. He didn't want to watch evil take root here. He wasn't ready for that. His mom was still back at home. Someone waved to him through the crowd. Joseph, a friend of his from school. Hank wandered over to him. Joseph grasped at Hank's arm, pulling up the sleeve. He was happier than Hank had ever seen. That made Hank nervous. Maybe Joseph's gap-toothed smile held something darker, too. Joseph dragged Hank with him as he rushed forward. He wanted them to have a good seat for this. Hank's voice wobbled as he asked what this even was. Joseph's eyes widened, almost reaching his bangs. He leaned closer to Hank and told him to listen up, because this was the kind of story worth remembering. The story of Gertie Wheeler. Joseph began. Gertie Wheeler sat in the front pew at church every Sunday next to her husband Daniel and their two kids, Ernest and Dennis. They always looked pretty as a picture in their white linen. People didn't know that much about Gertie. She had shown up a few years ago, and Daniel had married her almost immediately. Everyone thought they were happy, but they'd all been horribly wrong. Poppy Harris had been doing her morning chores when she heard someone grunting and groaning. She went to offer a hand and found Gertie Wheeler with a shovel. There were two buckets of slop on the ground next to her, beside three human heads. Little Ernest's eyes were peaceful, but Dennis and Daniel's were frozen in horror. Poppy quickly realized that the slop wasn't slop. It was the hacked up bits of the family's bodies. It took all of her energy to hold back her screams. Even so, Gertie eventually noticed Poppy, as if waking from a daze. Poppy took off running with Gertie at her heels, the shovel raised high over her head. Poppy didn't stop until she'd made it back home. Her husband, Aldous, took out a shotgun and shot Gertie in the thigh. When she dropped the shovel, they tied her up. Word spread about what Gertie had done to her kids. They were in small pieces now. Couldn't tell Ernest from Dennis, or even Daniel at this point. All they had to go on were the heads. Joseph wiggled his eyebrows at Hank as he finished his story. Joseph said that the tree was going to be used again. Soon, Gertie's body would be swinging in the wind. They couldn't miss it. Nothing this exciting ever happened here. Hank's stomach churned. He looked down at his own metal pocket, imagining that it was filled with pieces of flesh and guts rather than waiting for ice. He shivered. Those poor kids. Ernest was almost Hank's age. He couldn't imagine his own mother cutting away at his body until there was nothing left but a head. Joseph slapped him on the shoulder, making Hank jump. Joseph reminded his friend that Gertie's hanging would start soon. He wouldn't want to miss this. Hank nodded, swallowing his discomfort. 
The crowd quieted down around them. Hank and Joseph took their seats on a half wall, feet dangling over the edge. Hank craned his neck for a look at the killer. He saw the men first. There's a group of them surrounding someone, but the figure was so small that it was impossible to see. Only when they began to drag her towards the swinging noose did Hank get a look. Her hair was wild and greasy, sticking out in every direction. Her dress may have been blue, but now it was covered in splotches of dirt, grime, and something else. She didn't scream like Joseph thought she would. Instead, she was smiling. The same smile she gave people at church. Kind, warm, harmless. But it didn't look the same when there was blood at the edges of her lips. Gertie didn't say a word as the men pulled her to the tree. Hank was starting to get angry. This woman had killed someone almost his age, her own sons. She'd done that to her own family and left them out for scavengers like scraps from dinner. And now she didn't cry. She didn't scream. She just stood there, smiling. The men put the noose around her neck. Hank balled his fists. Maybe some people didn't deserve to be hanged here, but this woman did. She'd done horrible things. When her body was placed on the ice block, he wouldn't try to miss the corpse as he got his ice. She waved to the crowd. Hank wanted to throw dirt at her. The churning in his stomach was gone. There was something stranger working, coursing through his veins. Not disgust, not unease. It wasn't until they tightened the noose and started to string her up that Hank realized what the feeling was. Joy. He laughed as they pulled the rope taut, but she didn't die like she was supposed to. Instead, her feet flailed, toes desperately straining for support from the ground. Her hands reached up for her throat. She pulled her neck away from the rope, taking long gasps of breath. Joseph nudged Hank. He whispered that sometimes it took as much as three weeks for someone to die if the fall didn't kill them. His grandma had seen it once. Hank didn't have three weeks to wait. He wanted it to happen now. The woman started to wheeze, her fingers turning bright red with the effort of holding herself up. She lost her grip and fell back into the noose. A wrenching, choking sound came out of her throat, like she wasn't even human anymore. Hank sat on the edge of his seat. Gertie's movements slowed. The energy in the crowd was dwindling. Hank couldn't take his eyes off her. He watched every tremor she made, every flare of her nostrils as she tried to move some air through her crushed windpipe. People started to step away. Even Joseph was getting bored, kicking rocks in the ground rather than watching the woman suffer. Hank stayed past his dinner time. The sun was swallowed by darkness, but he didn't dare move. He needed to see this. Gertie gave one desperate push of her energy, trying to swing forward. Maybe she was hoping it would break her neck. A wet gurgle cut through the crickets of the quickly approaching night. 
her face flushed red, then blue, as the very air refused to help her. Hank laughed. He kept his eyes on her as the last of the lamps went out, then listened in the darkness for the swing of the rope and the rasp of her breath. It would be hours before she expired. He wanted to be there for every second of it. We don't know the name of the so-called Lady in Blue who haunts Captain Tony's saloon, but she's the bar's most active ghost by far. Both patrons and employees have reported seeing a blue blur moving through the enclosed courtyard, and some have even claimed to photograph her, but nothing conclusive has emerged. The legend goes that the lady in blue killed her husband and two sons sometime during the late 19th century. She chopped them up into pieces and left the gore in the yard, supposedly to feed the animals. The people of Key West were so disturbed at the sight of the carnage that they marched her straight to the hanging tree. She was hanged in the blood-stained blue dress she'd murdered her family in. But she did not die so easily. It is said that the initial drop of the rope did not break her neck, so she was suffocated by the weight of her own body for two days, giving a whole new meaning to Lady in Blue. Coming up, a patron stays past closing time in order to chat up the owner, about a century past closing. Now, back to the story. Key West has changed profoundly since the turn of the 20th century. Now known for its unique bohemian atmosphere and LGBTQ and kink-friendly festivals, the Ice House and Morgue became a cigar factory, then a bordello and it was eventually converted to a saloon called the Duval Club in the 1940s. The Duval Club was the beginning of a long association with queer culture for Captain Tony's. Morgan Bird, the owner of the club, held parties to provide the opportunity for male patrons to mingle with sailors from the nearby U.S. Navy outpost. Bird was eventually shut down when the Navy placed the bar off limits. Previously, the building had operated as a speakeasy under several owners during Prohibition, eventually becoming Sloppy Joe's Bar in 1933. Ernest Hemingway, Truman Capote, and Tennessee Williams were often seen at Sloppy Joe's when they were on the island. In 1958, Captain Tony Terracino, a bootlegger turned charter boat captain, purchased the building, transforming it into Captain Tony's Saloon. Captain Tony is something of a local legend in Key West, a larger-than-life figure. He was a gunrunner for Cuban mercenaries during the Bay of Pigs invasion and became the subject of local gossip for his many public romances. The current owner of Captain Tony's saloon is comfortable telling tales of the supernatural happenings his patrons have experienced, as well as legends in the saloon's history, particularly his colorful predecessor. Yet he still identifies as a skeptic. But even he has a story he can't explain. 
Julian was working late, and late at a bar just ended up being early for the following day. His eyes were exhausted, and his head ached. The numbers he was trying to reconcile were swimming in front of him. It was probably a good idea to turn in. So he packed up the receipts and forms, time cards, and supply orders, and prepared to go up the hatch, as his regulars like to say. His predecessor, the eponymous Captain Tony, had maintained a small residence above the bar in case he and one of his girlfriends were ever in need of some privacy. The small loft was only available through a ship-style hatch in the ceiling at the back of the bar. And since Julian took over the bar, it had become a safe place for storing the saloon's more sensitive papers. Julian closed his binder and looked up. He loved the bar when it was loud, but in the quiet hours of the near morning, the lack of windows, aside from the French doors, was distressing. The cavernous space felt empty, ominously so. This, despite the evidence of Bacchanal, the lingerie-covered ceiling, the dollar bills and business cards covering the ceiling's beams, the fully stocked bar, there was no solace in the silence. He heard a voice behind him, calling his name. Julian cocked his head. That was strange. It was coming from outside. He figured it might be some reveler saying a quick hello before continuing on with their walk of shame-slash-triumph. But no, it was coming from the back of the bar. The lot behind the saloon was fenced, but he figured it was worth checking anyway. It was lucky he did. The back door was wide open, swinging in the breeze as the palm trees lining Green Street bent and shook. There had been no wind the moment before. He was sure of that. Still, he shook his head, telling himself he really needed to start sleeping more, maybe finally learning work-life balance. He stepped out into the dark courtyard. The wind seemed to disappear as soon as his foot crossed the threshold. The claw-like shadows of the palms arched above him. All was still. There was no one out there, so he turned back for the building. The wind picked up again. Julian pulled the door shut and locked it, then turned back towards the bar. Nothing looked out of place, but checking the front door seemed like a good idea. The windowed French doors at the front were locked tight. He checked the closets and cabinets, still fighting paranoia. When he'd satisfied himself, he looked to the last section, the bathrooms. The men's bathroom was empty and spotless. The new kid was a real go-getter. The woman's bathroom was a different story. Paper towels were everywhere, lying on the floor like damp patches of half-melted snow. Annoyed, Julian made sure the stalls were empty, then collected everything in a garbage bag. The hairs on the back of his neck stood up. There was someone behind him, which didn't make sense because his back was to the interior wall. The bathroom had been empty. He was sure of it, but he was sure there was someone there too, waiting, floating in his blind spot, eyes burning into the back of his head. He took a deep breath and turned. 
There was nothing there. Nothing solid, anyway. If you asked him, he would have sworn that this was the truth. But his senses had told him a blue blur had passed through the wall as he turned. He put the papers away, took out the trash, locked the doors again, and headed home, trying not to notice that the wind seemed to be pushing him further and further away from the bar as he walked. Nothing happened the next night, and the eerie memory faded with time. He got more comfortable in the bar at night, and even teased the waitresses when they refused to go in the billiards room by themselves. So what if it used to be a graveyard? They had a hanging tree at the center of the bar. So Julian wasn't particularly unnerved when he heard the voice call him by name again on a very similar night. After closing, when he was supposed to be entirely alone, he did his best to ignore his heart rate as he checked that the doors were locked. Then he packed up to go. Don't leave, the voice pleaded. No, that was ridiculous. He told himself he didn't hear anything. Julian went for the door. The wind picked up. Don't leave, the voice said. Julian shook his head. Ridiculous. The back door to the fence courtyard blew open. The locked back door. Julian stomped over to it, yanking it shut and locking it tight. He turned back to the bar and to the tree, the hanging tree. There was a woman there. Her dress was a pale blue and her face was a dark navy, almost purple, swollen, distorted. But still, she was smiling. Julian stepped back involuntarily. The voice still came from behind him. Don't leave. Ghost in front and ghost behind. Julian felt fight or flight kick in, but he was still moving as slow as molasses, edging carefully, carefully towards the front door. The blue woman didn't seem to be watching him, only smiling vacantly into the distance. He edged faster, all the way to the door and out into the street. The hanged woman's horrible face never left his mind for the whole drive home. Somehow, he didn't cause a car accident. As soon as he got through the door, he threw himself into bed and tried to forget. His cell rang at 6 a.m. His eyes snapped open, wondering suddenly if the voice had been some kind of warning. What if there had been some kind of fire at the bar? He'd been so tired last night. He stared at the caller ID. It was his barback, who often came in early to do the prep before heading down to the beach for an hour or two before they opened. Julian told himself it was just property. Sure, it was his livelihood in one of the oldest buildings on the island, but it was just property. No one would be harmed if Captain Tony's burned down. It was insured. Well, not well enough, but insured. He picked up and felt his heart break. A girl had been on Green Street last night, wandering around at 5 a.m., an hour after he'd left. She'd called her mother from the depths of despair, a fistful of pills in her hand. Her mother had begged her to tell her where she was, 
A yellow building, she said, under a green awning. A girl had killed herself in front of Captain Tony's last night. If Julian had waited, well, Julian didn't wait. But now he listens every night, just in case, for a voice, begging, pleading, don't leave, don't leave. There are two significant tombstones inside Captain Tony's. The first belonged to Reba Sawyer. Her husband dumped her small tombstone on the sidewalk outside the bar shortly after her death in 1950. He discovered she'd been meeting up with her married lover at Captain Tony's for years and decided she should stay there permanently. The other belongs to one Elvira Edmonds who passed away on December 21st, 1822, when she was only 19 years old. She is yet another occupant of the graveyard-turned-billiard-room extension. Some researchers say that the bar's iconic owner, Captain Tony Terracino, fabricated all the stories behind the various gravestones. But the billiards room, the supposed graveyard, is known for its sense of unease and many employees at the bar refused to spend time in there alone. The voice the owner heard on that fateful night appeared to be benevolent, or at least attempted to be. But with so many spirits passing through, will that hold true for the next one? Things can get pretty rowdy at Captain Tony's on a Saturday night. Pay close attention to those drinking beside you. You never know who might drop in or rise up. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. For more information on Captain Tony's Saloon, amongst the many sources we used, we found Leslie Rule's book, Coast to Coast Ghosts, True Stories of Hauntings Across America, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Haunted Places, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Haunted Places on Spotify, just open the app and type Haunted Places in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joel Stein. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jennifer Rache, with writing assistance by Drew Cole. I'm Greg Polson.